Good afternoon. Thank you once again for joining me. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we've got a few of our Harvard Business Review tips. One of them is head off your next angry outburst. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? We're also going to have a look at uh, six, six tips for a startup business. But right now we're going to uh, cross over to Tony Vidray at AV Chartered Accountants. Talk about be careful what you claim for on your tax. Good. If anyone had angry outbursts, that's why you're talking to me, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I was just turning the volume up then. <laughs> oh, very good. Oh. <laughs> oh, very good. Well, there was well, someone you... who would have had a, an angry outburst. That's the uh, the guy who uh, who went to court that we'll talk about today. Yeah. So uh, we, we get, you, you spoke with uh, Todd a couple of weeks ago about uh, the sorts of things that we can deduct on our personal income tax return, and. Uh, there's an interesting case, Ogden's case. You're going to talk about Ogden? Yeah, let's have a chat about this guy. So what I, just to recap, what I had said to Todd a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and this case um, really, really drives it home, and, and that is if you're going to claim something in your return, um, you, you have to jump through a few hoops. And one of them is to prove that there is a link between the expense and the earning of your income, and that's hard enough as it is. But the other part that's really important, you have to substantiate your claim. You can't just... Um, you know, just use as I as I often say, it's a Star Wars reference. Just use the force and just uh, just assume that you can claim things without you know proper documentation. So, poor old Mr. Ogden was uh, selected out for an audit, and you could tell why he was selected out for an audit. <laughs> the guy, he worked for IBM as a he was a professional um, sales agent commission. Okay, just to paint the picture. So IBM didn't provide him with a with a dedicated office. So he actually. He had to work from home, so he spent a lot of his time travelling around, visiting clients, um, and met with them in you know local places. Um, so he also worked from home. Trouble was, he claimed um, sixty-three thousand dollars in expenses in one year, and fifty-three thousand dollars in another year. Now that, that's like putting a big target on your back and saying, "Please come and audit me. <laughs> Please come and take a uh, a bit of a look." So some of the things that he claimed, which is just this is probably the funniest case I've ever read. Um, he claimed a whole um, stack of things. The the guy, the the president who sat at the AAT, because this went to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, he um, he described the the taxpayers' evidence as ranging from the exaggerated to the implausible, and he described many of the claims as outrageous, unacceptable, and disgraceful. Uh-huh. Now, and keep in mind as we're going through these, he actually did go through a tax agent. So a tax agent wow. prepared this. So if we have time, we might have a bit of a a chat about, um, about that. So, so, look, at the end of the day, the guy worked from home. He was able to claim, um, as, as we probably know, it's reasonable to claim an area of the, the, the home floor that you area. work from. Yeah. yeah, as long as you... And straight away, you, you, you nailed it. As long as you work out a floor area and you, you, know, you, you, you pass that reasonableness test. This guy claimed 37% of, um, of the interest that he claimed, on, that he incurred on his... Um, on his rental property, yeah. So straight away, you know, there's a problem there. So he just wasn't able to substantiate um, 37%. So they trimmed it back to a floor area which was close to 5% of the, of the total <laughs> space. So straight away, you know, you're in uh, you're in a, in a lot of trouble. Um, another thing they knocked back, which is always a bit of a grey area, and that is meals. So he actually claimed some meals. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and look, there's a whole series of rules, and we won't have time to talk about it today, around claiming meals. But the key here was that IBM, his employer, did not pay him um, an overtime meal allowance. So if you're not getting paid an overtime meal allowance, you have a lot of problems 
trying to claim meals, um, you know, unless you're away on business. So yeah. there's some there's some problems there. Um, what one of the ones I loved was um, he claimed um, expenses for tea, coffee, and light refreshments um, when he was uh, when he was at home, which they were described as outrageous and utterly acceptable. Um, again, reasonable person. How much do you think you'd um, you'd, um, you'd, drink. <laughs> you'd drink? He claimed a thousand dollars. Um, you know, one year, $950, you know. Again, that's a lot of tea and a lot of um, drinking. And again, but he wasn't able to substantiate it. He, he produced some random supermarket receipts and none of them which tallied back, so... Maybe they um, were the expensive pods. Yeah, <laughs> that's coffee it. pods. Yeah, 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 we know how much they cost. So, um, yeah, so, but overall, again, the, the pattern of behaviour, they looked at it and went, well, we think that you just, you know, a lot of these were consumed by your... Um, by your family. Yeah. One of the interesting ones um, for people who spend a lot of time in their working outdoors, he claimed sunscreen <laughs> and sunglasses. Now, again, they, they commented that his estimates of his time in the sun were vague and unreliable, and um, he didn't drive a car with a sunroof. Um, he, he performed most of his function indoors. <laughs> so, yeah. so they disallowed that. So again, the onus of proof is on, is on him. Um, another beautiful claim that he put through was some rubber-soled shoes, and he cont- he contended that there was um, there was potential damage um, to computers from static electricity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there is. So, yeah, well, no, no, he had that he had that um, taken out. But this is the one I particularly like: the cost of managing tax affairs. So, so we should know that um, the cost of managing tax affairs um, is deductible. Yes. Um, so what he included in in that is a blanket claim for groceries purchased either on the day or the day before his tax agent visited him so he tried to say that those expenses amount yeah. to the um the extent of managing your your uh, tax affairs so the cost of feeding your tax agent sadly is not it's not a tax deduction it's not deductible although otherwise i'd be front and center to be, to be able to you'd be visiting homes that. that's it so and, and, a, and a couple of other claims that he claimed he claimed amounts to his seven-year-old son um, for secretarial um, assistance, which again there was just no basis um, whatsoever, um, he claimed some stationery, which included a Dora the Explorer pencil case, um, stickers, um, and art supplies, and uh, around the whole thing off, he also claimed an outdoor patio setting, which he described as a work table. So on the balance of things, um, he was actually they actually said to him at one point that he was very very lucky that they just allowed him um, four hundred and fifty odd dollars. Um, as heating and lighting, because his his overall claims were just outrageous. Yeah, so, yeah. It'd be so interesting to know. What, a, it's it's a beautiful case on what not to do. It'd be interesting to know what his actual income was declared at, whether it's sixty thousand dollars worth of expenses. I, I could tell you, he, <laughs> um, in claiming sixty three thousand, that represented thirty percent of his income. Okay. So he must have earned about one hundred eighty thousand and claimed sixty three. Yeah. And then the year after, he claimed fifty three thousand, and his income was about. That was about thirty-seven percent. So his income must have been about what's that one forty, one fifty thousand. So we say this all the time, and and this is I'll get back to the tax to the agent. tax agent. You know, like oh, I just shake my head when I see things like this because at the end of the day, we know the ATO have a very powerful computer system. They will pluck things out um, that where claims are above um, the norm. And if there's anything like this, you are going to get plucked out. The onus is on you to be able to prove your claim, to prove that there's a link, but also to have all the paperwork and receipts there. You can't yeah. do these, you know, these arbitrary um, these arbitrary claims. Now, having said that, I had a thought for next month, if you want to have a chat about claims that we can make 
without documentation. And there are okay. a few things that we can claim. So let's, yeah. let's talk about that um, next month. But um, yeah, it's um, it's a very very dangerous line to, to put submit those those returns. And as I said to you last month, for the very first time, if you're doing your own return on um, the MyGov, the MyTax website, it is actually checking your claims live. So okay. if you're putting in these large outrageous claims, the system will actually prompt you and say, gee, that's pretty high. Are you sure? Okay. Um, are you sure you've met all the, all the criteria? So it's the first time it's actually going to prompt you um, in real time um, to, to double check that you're... Uh, you're doing the right thing. So um, you mentioned meals, and I, I, as you say, we don't have time to talk about meals, but maybe we include that one next week, next month too, because yeah, yeah, um, okay. people often say to me, you know, why, why can't we have a, a lunch out, a business lunch out? So uh, I think it'll be worth mentioning the, the uh, meals situation. We will. We'll go back yeah. to nine, September of 1985 when a certain treasurer called Paul Keith yes. um, allowed. <laughs> Disallowed entertainment. I and, remember um, it yeah. well. Yeah, so do I. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, we'll talk about that next month. That'd be good. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Frank. Have a great month, and we'll talk to you next month. Great. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Bye-bye. Tony Vidray there from AV Chartered Accountants. Yes, uh, well, are you going to put a, a, a outrageous claim in like uh, Mr Ogden did? Uh, you, you need to substantiate it. I thought I'd look at a very interesting article today, Six Tips for Starting Up. There's a very great magazine out there called Inside Small Business, which is put out on a monthly basis, or sorry, on a quarterly basis, and you can usually get your free copy from the business enterprise centres that are around. But Alan Manley, who's an entrepreneur and author, um, had this very interesting article, Six Tips for Starting Up, and I thought there's uh, a lot of businesses there in the Hunter that often need some guidance starting up, uh, and it was a very well-written article. Behind every startup is an aspiration to do something different, which attracts fellow travellers, all keen to be different and break with the boring services, products, and maybe procedures of more established companies. This can be a trap, as behind every successful and exciting company is a boring administration department that keeps it trading. So if you're thinking of going it alone, here is what you need to consider. And here's the six tips. First of all, avoid a cash flow crisis. Most startups have seed capital or reserves contributed by supporters, but many startups do not worry about cash flow, drawing comfort from having cash as their reserves. This reckless disregard for the value of cash is a sure sign of a startup. Startups do not have reserves. They only have time to make money before the cash crisis that awaits is recognised. Many good businesses close because they run out of cash. And of course, the figures are probably about 60% of businesses don't survive their first birthday. So very important to look at that cash flow. Next one is uh, sell, sell, sell. Most startups have a key customer or two. The risk is that these are few customers will keep the startup captive as the expense of new sales. Uh, sales to new clients are vital for a company to survive. And again, it's an area that uh, I see many times with small businesses. They don't want to get out there and sell themselves. And unfortunately, when you start a business, you become a salesperson. The third one, and we've mentioned this one before on the air, non-payers are not clients. 
Debtors who do not pay on time are saying they don't mind if you go broke. If you have enough slow payers, you will run out of cash. Startups must not confuse non-payment as clients. Bad payers are worse than companies' competition. To manage slow-paying debtors, withdraw your services and suggest they try your competitor. Then send the debt to a debt collector. The fourth one is buy and pay wisely. While buying equipment and services for startups take time, it can be a vital part of the long-term survival plan. Remember that price is not everything. Look for suppliers who offer a monthly account. Any account is better than paying cash. Debtors are to be collected quickly and creditors to be managed slowly. And then there's another important one. Forget about work-life balance. Launching a startup is the exact opposite of balance. It's total commitment to the goal. Nothing but nothing replaces total commitment. The desire to give it all you have is a reason for setting up a startup. So when you meet the life balance advocate, remember they have lesser goals than you do. And finally, it's all about you. Startups may seem friendlier than large organisations because they often have smaller number of staff who openly share the enthusiasm. So really we're looking at that customer service and uh, small businesses do have that edge on customer service if they use it properly. Remember, your goal as a startup is to survive that startup stage. We've got time for a couple of our Harvard Business Review tips. As we said earlier there, head off your next angry outburst. When you're angry or disappointed with a colleague, it can be very tempting to dash off a text or email to say so. But an angry message sent in haste can ruin a relationship. Before communicating, ask yourself, firstly, what outcome do I want? Think about your your end goal and respond in a way that it will achieve. Secondly, what should I communicate? If, for example, you want to be in the loop on a project, saying, I'm concerned that you didn't include me in the meeting, is clearly a better choice than, I can't believe you didn't include me. Thirdly, how should I communicate? If you listen to other people, they'll most likely return the favour. Be curious and ask questions. Ask other people whether you've understood their perspective. And finally, when should I communicate? Wait until you can approach the conversation with curiosity, compassion and clarity and until the other person is likely to be generous and calm. So we often send those emails in haste, don't we? Uh, Not necessarily within the company, but sometimes outside the company as well. What about identifying your ideal work rhythm? If you dislike having structured work schedule, but find it difficult to maximise productivity without one, it may be time to change the way you think about time management. Consider your unique creative rhythm. How do you work best on a monthly, weekly and daily basis to help create order and flexibility? Most people have a natural rhythm in which they can accomplish about one major professional project per month. Projects, meetings and commitments can vary week to week, but it's helpful to have a general sense of the weekly that that's right for you. Your, for example, your daily, there's no single formula, but the trick is to be honest with yourself about when you do your best focused work, when you prefer to have meetings, 
and when you make uh, space for processing and planning that keeps everything moving. Experiment with your monthly, weekly and daily rhythms to find what's right for you. We've probably got time for one more. Make sure that your next big meeting actually accomplishes something. How many times have you walked out of a, uh, of a theoretically important meeting and thought, what did we accomplish? Most often than not, the problem isn't what did or didn't happen at the meeting. Nothing got done because the meeting's goals were never firmly established. Whether it's a 15-person executive team meeting or a 150-person leadership conference, the st- first step when planning an important meeting should be to draft an initial set of goals based on the answers to two, the following two questions. What do you want to have debated, decided or discovered at the end of the session that you and the team haven't already debated, decided or discovered? And secondly, what do attendees... To, uh, what do you want attendees to say when their team members ask what happened at the meeting? Answering both these questions will give you a high level of understanding of what the meeting needs to accomplish. Well, thank you for being with me for the last half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've looked at those uh, things that you don't want to include in your tax return, uh, deductions that you can't justify. In the Ogden's case there, six tips for starting up. And a couple of tips from the Harvard Business Review. In a moment, Dave Cochran will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we'll have a talk with Innovation and with Christina because she'll be back. And we'll have more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for Business, the Law and You at the same time next week. Until then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Dale Carnegie once said, when fate hands us a lemon... Let's try to make lemonade. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.